All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Here we go, getting into the book of Revelation again. I'm, I'm pretty excited. It's going to be um, amazing getting into the Word of God. Every single week we're, we're learning something, and it's, it's just amazing. And, uh, you know, obviously there's so much information that's coming our way, and uh, but there's so much imagery and so many different characters and actors and, and players in the whole book of Revelation that we're about to get into especially. But... You know, that's why we're taking it slowly. We're going, just like I said, you know, last week, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is, the thing that we need to understand is that God wants us to understand this book. This is not meant to be some mystical, out there kind of storyline that we're not supposed to understand. That would be ridiculous. God doesn't do that to his people. So he wants us to understand this, all right? So let's, uh, let's get into this today. So I'm, I'm going to pray because I need the anointing and you need the anointing to hear. So let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for your anointing, for your power upon me, Lord. I ask you, Lord, to help me to uh, speak with clarity, to hear your heart and your voice with clarity. And Father, more than anything, I also ask that the ears of people would hear, Lord, that they would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and that includes me, Lord. Uh, Help us to understand and to grasp what you're saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I want to start today with what I consider a pretty clear overview um, from one of the many books and articles that is written out there on Revelation, and there are so many out there from all different angles, from all different aspects. But I believe this particular little excerpt that I'm going to read to you kind of encapsulates what a lot of people are pondering nowadays and highlights the aspects that people are thinking about. So here's the quote. When people read the book of Revelation, they encounter this vast array of symbols. Some have become quite well known to the public, particularly in the late 20th century and especially also in this century. Uh, The mark of the beast, which the book talks about as some sign or mark that people receive on their hand and their forehead. Even the number of this beast, the beast being some military ruler that controls the world at the end of time, uh, the number of that beast is 666. And we hear a lot of this even in movies and it's made its way out there into the secular world, the number 666. All right, let's... I'll go back to the quote. That was me adding in a little bit there. There's a sealed book. It's a scroll with seven wax seals. As you begin to open it, you get this unfolding scenario of events, beginning with war and famine and disease and earthquakes and heavenly signs. And I like what he says next. He goes, it's fairly standard, fairly standard for end of the world kind of scenarios, I suppose. Anyway, and then you begin to get these characters introduced. And there are five or six main characters. One would be the false prophet. He's like a dragon, but he speaks like a lamb and he has horns. A beast that is nondescript, some sort of horrible creature that appears to stand for the Roman government to the early Christians, but today could be any power. It's some sort of evil empire of some type. And then you have the saints or the Christians, the faithful followers of God that are being martyred. You have two people that are very interesting, that many modern interpreters are interested in, and they're called the two witnesses in chapter 11. These are, I guess you could say, the two final prophets that the book expects to appear on the earth, like Moses and Elijah of ancient times in the Bible. And you have a dragon who's actually identified as the devil behind the scenes, and of course you have Jesus Christ, the Lamb. So it's as if there's a whole stage set with these characters and then things begin to unfold one by one in terms of what's supposed to happen. And then he continues. He says, if you open the book of Revelation and simply begin reading it as an unfolding scenario, it goes something like this. There will be wars and famines and disease epidemics. Sound familiar? And heavenly signs that will alert the world to some sort of crisis. Then will come an antichrist, as he's called. Well, that word actually doesn't appear in the book of Revelation, but it is backed up by uh, other um, parts of the New Testament. There will come an antichrist, as he's called, or a political ruler that will establish control over the whole earth. He'll be backed up with a religious ruler who's called the false prophet. They together establish a unified social, economic and religious system that dominates the world. Okay, so this is where we start to hear all the language nowadays of this one world government. It's coming from this understanding here. 
Okay, let's, let's go back to what he's saying. The only thing opposing them are the people of God and these two prophets. They're called the two witnesses who appear in Jerusalem and begin to speak against this power. The rest of the book, really the last half of the book, is about the overthrow of the system. The beast, the false prophet who has the number 666, the Antichrist, is overthrown with judgments and plagues. Most of them are very cosmic, asteroids hitting the earth, the water turning to blood and that sort of thing until finally Jesus Christ returns as a warrior on a white horse and sets up the kingdom of God. And then further on down he goes on to say, With a book like the book of Revelation, you will inevitably have several central messages depending on the angle from which you look at them. Some people see it primarily as a political statement where the central message is resistance to tyranny and other people would see it as a more spiritual book where the emphasis is on the end product, where everybody gets to sing like the angels in heaven and where detachment from this world is the central point of it. I suppose, he concludes, you would have to say that the central message encompasses both of these. End of quote. All right, so I would say that this is a fairly good overview of how the book reads. One of the key thoughts that this guy highlights in this article is, is this, and I'm going to paraphrase. Basically, he's saying that some Christians prioritize the essence of revelation mainly as being a call to the resistance of tyranny and defying perceived injustices. Now, is this a correct interpretation for Christians to have? Well, this, is, this was true in the context of a very specific time back then in what the early church was facing when the Roman Empire, uh, when they were faced with, sorry, when they were faced with the uh, Roman Empire. However, now in the 21st century, we have to, number one, understand how this applies to us in the times that we now live in. By correctly interpreting and biblically understanding the definition of the very specific tyranny that Revelation tells us to resist. Okay, these are some key principles here. Remember how Brahm started off in week one, I believe it might have been, and he said that throughout history people have basically overlaid or superimposed the imagery of, of actors and characters in the book of Revelation like the, the beast, the antichrist, the mark of the beast, what that's going to look like, 666, the king of the east, onto their then political and national circumstances. So the misreading of Revelation formed their worldview and it has down the centuries you can go back and historically see how through the history of the church how people have had an erroneous uh, worldview uh, based on their understanding their misreading and misinterpretation of the book of revelation and down through the ages people have kind of continued and adjusted to redefine who the characters of revelation were to them and mm -hmm. kept incorrectly reinserting them into their lifetimes mm -hmm. and into their into their timelines and going this must be the beast you know the pope is the beast and and that emperor is the beast and that one is the beast. Oh, no no this is the antichrist oh this it's history okay that's what they do only to be proven wrong over and over again all right so misinterpreting the time frame of revelation gave them a false worldview of their portion of history Uh, and in turn, it affected their subsequent behavior. Of course, it's, if you had the wrong, you know, we are our theology, guys. You know, sure. we are our belief system. Everyone has a theology, whether they believe in God or they don't. Even not having a belief in God basically has a statement about theology. And we act according to that. We live our lives according to our core belief systems. And so these people, it actually affected how they lived their lives. I mean, there were some people last century that thought that the end of the world was going to happen in you know, the, the beginning of the last century, and none of them wanted to have uh, bank loans. They didn't want to have mortgages on their houses. They didn't, you know, all sorts of things because they thought Jesus was coming soon. Well, that didn't happen. And many of those people have already passed on, good, godly Christians. But if this is the trouble, it affects our entire way that we live. So the principle here that Brahms actually already taught us, if we don't understand what it meant to the intended readers back then, if we don't have a good grasp of what actually this whole story is about, then we won't get what it means to us now. 
And that's why it's so vital that we go precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, and we build the concepts and the understanding. All right, so that's number one. Number two, we also have to understand the defiance from the perspective of the first century churches when Revelation was written. You know, what sort of defiance was it against, this defiance towards tyranny? What sort of defiance were they required to perform in the book of Revelation? Well, the church back then, remember, and Brahms taught us this too, was the only community who refused to succumb to the pressure of worshipping and deifying the emperor. And that's why the seven letters that we've we've discussed at length were preparing them for exactly that. Jesus was coaching them and preparing them to be ready and strong to defy uh, the emperor worship. And they paid a really high price uh, with their own lives, their, their, you know, economics, the economic situation, their own finances, with imprisonment. Some were martyred. Um, So let's put defiance or resistance to authority in context. Okay, it was defiance in the form of a belief system, not by standing up for their rights to have a voice. It was not it was by not bowing down to a false God. That was the defiance that they took by not bowing down to a false God. And ultimately, Revelation 12, 11 tells us that they loved not their lives even unto death. That's how much they would defy uh, the, the tyranny of the age. So. Let me state this. A correct end times worldview is determined by the correct approach to reading and understanding this book of Revelation. And a correct end times worldview in turn dictates our subsequent behavior. Now, based on that, how we now, as the 21st century church, are we in the 21st century? Yes. yes, I'm losing track of centuries. How we now approach this thought of resisting tyranny as believers is crucial. All right, think about that. That's this thought. That's what grabbed my attention when I read that excerpt from that guy's uh, overview. This thought of resisting tyranny, which is true for, for the book of Revelation, absolutely. Our understanding of how we approach that thought right now is crucial because how so many people outwork that is where the errors begin. And we are seeing the actual outworking and the fruit of some of these enormous biblical errors. They are enormous. I've watched over the last few years and I've been gobsmacked. I've been overwhelmed by the reality of watching certain streams of the church make incredibly huge biblical errors which have in turn affected their behavior. They're biblical errors that are fully blown nowadays as people once again are misreading Revelation. And we don't have to go far. You just have to look on social media posts. It's fueling the protests on our streets, guys. All right? If you drill right down, I know there are many people out there that are protesting that don't believe in God. But I'm telling you now, there is a whole bunch of Christians Mm. mixed in there that believe uh, that what they're doing is based on, if you drill down, it'll go back to their understanding and their misinterpretation of the book of Revelation. I know because I see it everywhere on social media. I read their posts. I read what they're saying. And I, I read their interpretation of where this is going. Because, you know, and you, you just see it on YouTube channels, chat rooms alike, because nowadays some Christians are taking that defiance to mean standing up for their liberties and freedoms in accordance with their rights. Whereas Revelation is about fighting tyranny that makes people go against God's very laws as opposed to this modern understanding of trying to maintain personal liberties. Mm-hmm. Now, what do I mean by God's laws? I mean actual moral truths. In other words, being forced to worship gods other than the one true God. That was what they were facing in the book of Revelation. It doesn't mean fighting against being made to stay at home during a pandemic or wearing a mask, for goodness sake. That's not how we fight against, and it's nearly falling off the chair, that's not how we fight the tyranny of injustices. No, it's not. It's not, okay? Revelation is not this clarion call to civil disobedience when it comes to protecting our so-called liberties, but rather it's a clarion call to worship God. We're going to see this today. To exclusive worship and devotion to God and God alone. And when it matters most, when the pressure is on, who will we worship? 
That's what it means to face, to come against tyranny. That's what it means yeah. to, to fight against tyranny, to resist the, the powers that be. Is, you know, who will we worship? Who is our exclusive worship directed to? And that stance is only possible when we have the correct view from God's perspective. You know, it's so vital that we understand what, what this whole perspective is for us, okay? Um, this misreading and this failure to understand the times, uh, like the sons of Issachar, it says there were men who understood the times, is, is why last year we saw so many crazy things coming out of certain streams of the church with false prophecies. Mm. So many things that were being stated and being said. This is not a political perspective. This is a spiritual leadership perspective and, and how we interpret the book of Revelation. Forget who the prophecies were about. That's immaterial. It's more about the fact that there was such a drive and such a need to see their view of how the Revelation, book of Revelation was going to play itself out, that they actually manipulated and, and, and changed and, and transformed the very precious gift of prophecy mm. to push and to put pressure on something that they believed was going to happen. And it didn't happen. Because you know why? Because people started interpreting this book for themselves. And there's a whole lot of reasons. I'm not going to go down into it today, but it goes back to how they see uh, Israel, how they see, you know, whether it's pre-trib or post-trib. Like, there's all sorts of things that we obviously we're not going to go into now. But it's a whole collection and a summary of ideas that, that bring them to a perspective of this. It's even how in America, how they see the role of America. Mm. And even that goes back to, is it biblical how they're seeing the role? Like there's so much, and I won't go into that now, but this is the problem when people start to interpret this book for themselves. They want their ears tickled. So they accumulate teachers and prophets, it turns out, in accordance to their own desires, 2 Timothy 4.3. And they stop listening to the real teachers that Jesus, in fact, holds in his right hand. Revelations 1, 1 and 2, we've talked about. These are the ones that Jesus is holding. He has authority over. He's ordained them. They're the ones under his control, under his leadership and under his authority. And has, in fact, these ones are the ones that he has, in fact, appointed to equip the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Like there is order in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. There is a correct way. If we would just follow the correct order, the word of God kind of interprets itself. And you know what? These teachers, they're usually the ones without the self-promotion of social media and the megaphone that self-aggrandizement provides. Hmm. They're usually the ones <laughs> who have clothed themselves with the humility of Christ. They are speaking but the angry, milk-fed, self-focused crowd who are centered on their own personal sense of rights are drowning them out. They're not listening. You know why? Because they're babies. Now, come on, Melbourne Life. We're not babies. We're going to be intelligent believers and we're going to grow ourselves on the Word of God. You see, all of that kind of behavior is a contradiction to the teaching of Jesus who always teaches us about responsibility Stewardship and self-sacrifice. Mm. That is the definition of, of discipleship and the mark of a true believer. All right, so today what I want to highlight is what we will learn from this next chapter that we're, gonna, uh, that we're about to read and beyond. It will teach us how we should approach the constant state of apprehension in our own world and how sh we should live in this world of so many contradictions mm. with so many ups and downs. I mean, hey, we're in lockdown number six. Case in point. And you know what? I, I won't be surprised if there are more before the end of the year. And I'm pretty sure you probably think the same. It doesn't exactly take a profit to, to realise that. We're in, we're in a bad state and there's a lot of uh, ups and downs that we're, and a lot of uh, apprehension that we're all facing. All right, so let's, let's learn something today, uh, how we are to approach this kind of thing in the world. All right, let's open up to Revelations chapter 4. And let's read from verses 1 to 11. <clears throat> Revelation 4, starting at verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, he's obviously referring back to the voice that he heard in chapter 1, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. 
At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We've talked about them uh, last week and, and earlier on. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. All day, and, sorry, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Woof. We sang that song last week. I think we're going to sing it at the end today. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. Wow, so so far what have we looked at? Well, we've looked at chapter 1, which describes John's encounter with the risen Jesus. That's the introduction. Chapters 2 and 3, we already know it focuses on people on the earth. Now in chapter 4, the scene is about to change. Now we're going from earth to heaven. And we've gone from 2 and 3, where the, the church is functioning on earth with Christ in the midst. Now we're moving to heaven, to the centrality of the throne of God and the presence of God. So let's, let's look briefly as our framework, you know, in chapters 2 and 3, obviously we've said it many times, the letters to the seven churches dealt with specific issues of the different churches. We summarized all of that last week, so you can go back and listen to that if you want to gain some more understanding. However, this is what I want to get across. Just like in the New Testament epistles where typically the writer uh, would start, you know, something like Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints, who are in Ephesus, for instance. Well, John also writes in a similar fashion. He starts it in Revelations 1 verse 4 by saying, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this means that while chapters 2 and 3 contain the letters that, that deal with and drill down on all the specific issues, and that's kind of like Jesus' letter and his book that he's writing to those churches, to those local churches, when you zoom back out, actually the whole book of Revelation is the epistle of John to the seven churches. We must remember that. We yep. must remember that. Yep. So that means the whole book in its entirety, right to the end of the book. Even this revelation of the throne that we're, we're going to discuss right now, it's not just for John, it's for the seven churches to mm. understand. Mm. Yep. This is a letter, a love letter. I love how, mm. how Hesh said that before about the words of Jesus being like the words of love. But yeah, this yeah. is like a love letter from, from the throne of God, from Jesus himself to these churches. And it includes the revelation of the throne. All right. So while in the letters to the churches... Okay, so everyone grasp this. While in the letters to the churches, as we summarized last week, Jesus wanted them to what? See the situation they were in, specifically in the light of who Jesus truly is. Today and next week, we will see that in chapters 4 and then next week in chapter 5, that the invitation given to John was for him to see, and ultimately these churches that the epistle was written to, for them to see on a much grander scale the world situation all the way to eternity, all the way to eternity from heaven's perspective. How? In the light of who God is. Mm -hmm. So now we are not to see God and interpret God in the light of this world situation, which so many people are doing mm -hmm. erroneously, but we are to see the world situation in the light of who God is. All right? Let's keep going. So rather 
than doing what so many others have done before us by erroneously interpreting what God might be doing in 2021 in light of our world situation and try to fit his word into our current circumstances, Mm. which so many people are doing. They're overlaying, superimposing, is this, is this. It happens all the time. Let's instead view our current world crisis in view of who God is and how heaven sees things. So let's take a moment now as we look at chapter 4 and let's learn. So let's go back to the passage. The scene, as we've said, is no longer on earth, but it is now in heaven. And John once again was transported in the spirit. So we see the scene in heaven. You've got the elders. They represent spiritual leadership and authority. You've got the four living creatures. Uh, They were there primarily as worship beings modeling what worship should be and they also exercise a level of authority as we'll we'll come to learn and then in verse one it starts with the words after this after this and basically what it means by saying after it means after receiving the messages to the seven churches an invitation was now immediately given to John to come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So basically God is now saying, all right, you've, you've done all that. You've given the messages to the churches. That's great. Now they're going to get on with that. They're going to, they've looked at Jesus. They know how to interpret that. They're going, to, they're going to run with that and they're going to become strong on the earth. Now, it's almost like he couldn't wait. Now, come up here. I want you to come up into heaven. I want you to come through this door and I want you to uh, see something because I'm going to show you what must take place after this. Whoo. I want you to see what we see. That's what he's saying. See it from heaven's perspective. Because there was this invitation to show what must take place after this. But before he began to see what must take place, before that unraveling of the scroll, before the unraveling of the events and the vision of what was about to happen, there was like this interlude, Mm. like this moment. And it's like he said, I want you to see things as we see them. So what I want us to understand is that chapter 4 is like this vital and crucial segue into what actually happens next for the rest of the book of Revelations. The stage is being set to show what is to come. But you and I are going to learn as we look at this that the launching place is worship. The launching place for all of this is a place of worship. Okay, what does it say now in, in, chap- in verse 2? At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in, in heaven. So remember, this, this now is describing something that has nothing to do with the unfolding events that must take place. This is this little interlude. Let's, let's, let's grasp what is happening here. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. Now, this spiritual phenomenon, I was in the Spirit, It occurs four times in the book of Revelation. Obviously the first one where he sees the risen Jesus. Now is the second one. The third one is in 17, chapter 17, verse 3, where Paul, uh, Paul, where John is carried away by the Spirit into the desert to see and to witness the the punishment of Babylon, which was actually Rome. Um, That's the real-life application of these things. Um, And it was also referred to the great harlot. And then in chapter 21, verse 10, another time when he was, he was in the spirit, when he was carried to a great mountain to see the bride, which of course is us, the church, the wife of the lamb, the wife of Jesus, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, us, the church. Uh, and another word is the new Jerusalem. See, all these words have meanings and they have real life applications for you and I, which we're going to learn as we go along. And then, of course, in verses 3 to 11, we start to see John's experience of God's glory in his presence. And we see, we read about how from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And this kind of language is similar to that of when, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. You know, he had to climb up to the, top, to the top of the mountain to meet with God. But the whole time, even while that, all the powerful manifestations of God's glory were being, were being presented to Moses, he still remained on physical Mount Sinai. There was no change of realm. He was on a mountain. But for John, on the other hand, it was an immediate and instant change of realm. He was on the scene uh, in Patmos, from the scene in Patmos, sorry, 
now suddenly he's in God's throne in heaven. Wow. Such an instant and immediate change of scene shows that this heavenly realm for John was just a step away into another dimension. Unlike, you know, heaven and earth, that image implies distance. Well, this, this, it was just a step away. It was another dimension. Now, I'll, I kind of want to demystify this a bit because I've experienced this and I've, I give this testimony in, in DMS sometimes, but I don't think I've ever said it in a public sermon. But when I first became a Christian, I had an experience where I know I was taken in the spirit and I, I experienced something absolutely profound. I call it a trance. I believe it was a trance. What happened was Brahma and I had just become Christians and we weren't in a church yet. We weren't baptized in water yet. We weren't filled with the Holy Spirit yet. But I was so passionately in love with Jesus. And I went to my sister-in-law's house. It was a little thatched house in this very poor village and uh, so bad that it, when the sun would move during the day, you could see the sunlight coming through the thatched walls. But the most amazing thing is in that sort of poverty, God met with me. And uh, I love that, that God always seems to come and meet people in mangers. <laughs> he does things in strange places, you know, in very simple places. He doesn't care about what we as human beings uh, consider as wonderful. And there I was in this little poor place, but I was sitting on, on in the spare bedroom of my sister-in-law's house and Brahma and I were sitting on the bed and, and we, were, we prayed because we were so in love with Jesus. Now, at that time, I still didn't know how to pray out loud. I was quite shy. I know that's hard to believe, but I was. And <laughs> I don't know what happened. I think the Holy Spirit got me and opened my mouth and I've never closed it. Anyway, <laughs> um, so there we are, we're praying. And Brahma's the one praying, not me. And I'm just sitting there, but my heart is just... Like it literally felt on fire for Jesus. And as Brahms praying, I could hear his voice, but then all of a sudden it's like his voice began to fade out and this other sound came into my head and it was so real. I can literally, I can still remember it now, but at the time it was a physical, actual sound that I could hear. And all of a sudden I was in this place where I could hear the worship of heaven. I could hear hundreds, if not thousands of voices singing. And they were singing the hallelujah chorus, which I probably didn't even know existed back then. And just the words hallelujah, hallelujah, going up in keys, just like you hear on recordings nowadays. That majestic sound, and it was so powerful. It was so uh, invasive of all my five senses that I just began to cry. I, I heard it. I, I felt it. it. It became a visceral thing in me. And to this day, worship is a visceral thing. It's, it's something in me that I experience. And I, it's like I, I feel the presence of God goes right back to this moment. And I had tears pouring down my face. I could not hear Brahm. All I could hear was this, this, the most incredible sound system, uh, very loud, very powerful and so moving. And then the same way that it started, it also faded back out again. And as it faded back out, Brahm's voice faded back in. I could hear him, And I heard him finishing off the prayer. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, what just happened? I had tears pouring down my face. I know that something, I was translated in the spirit. I don't know what happened, but I know I was not in that room at that moment. Was I physically sitting there? Yeah, of course I was. Was Paul still, uh, Paul, I keep saying Paul. Was John still uh, physically sitting in Patmos? Yes, he was. But this was in his spirit. He was taken to that place, just like I've experienced that. Brahms also had exactly the same experience. We've both experienced one of these things in our lives, and they were very significant. I believe something happened to me at that moment to do with worship because I've never been the same since when it comes to being in the presence of God in worship. So let's demystify this. This is a reality that is actually available to all of us. And you know what? I didn't work up for that. I wasn't in a church. I wasn't going to church. It didn't occur to us to go to church. I just loved him. The only criteria that is needed, the only thing Jesus needs is a heart that is burning for him and desiring after him. All right, so all of this needs to remind us of Paul's statement where he says, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is something mm -hmm. available to every single one of us. That's Ephesians 2 verse 18. And that was Paul. I got that right. Okay. So you see another similar uh, scene in the Old Testament um, is Ezekiel. And uh, Daniel also had a vision of the Son of Man. 
It's really interesting. All of these people were in, in exile. John was in exile. Ezekiel was in exile. Daniel was in exile. And then, of course, even the scene in Isaiah 6 is so similar to the Revelation scene uh, where he also sees the throne of God. Now, he wasn't in exile, but Israel was going through a tumultuous time. I love that when it's in this moment of dire need in the nations and in the world, God says, come on, guys, come up here with me. Come up here, just like to John, come up here and see what we see. See it from my perspective. Come on, church. This is what God is saying to us now. Let's not be people who just now want to do everything in our own strength. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. But the way for us to do this is to come up into that realm and see what heaven sees. All right. And they're saying, just like in Revelation and in Isaiah 6, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because why? Isaiah was catching a, a, grasping a little insight into heaven. He saw the same thing that John saw. Woo. Isn't that amazing? You know, this is just a little bit of a sidetrack here, but I just, I just found out that I think is it um, Handel's Messiah? That's the Hallelujah song. I, I just found that out. Found out that it was actually based on this story in Revelation. So my question is. Did he go there too? Did God take him there? Did he, did he hear, like, where did that song come from? Did it come from him or did it come from heaven? And he, he went in this way. I don't know. That's, I'm literally, th- that's, that's for free, that one. Let's park that one over there. <laughs> but, guys, you know what? This is stuff that's accessible to us. There is worship and there is music in heaven. Yeah? Now, the, think about this. The time difference between the writing of Revelation and the writing of Isaiah, because remember, he saw the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's about 800 years. Yet the similarity of these two scenes before the throne of God, like I've already pointed out, it's during these really intense, tumultuous kind of times. And you know what this shows us? Mm. This shows us that heaven is unperturbed by Mm. the chaos in the world. You know why? Because God is on the throne and he is in control. I love, Hesh, how you said that earlier. You said exactly that, didn't you? You said that, didn't you? Yeah, you did. He said that. You did. You said that. He said those words. He's forgotten. He's going, did I? I don't know. Yeah. But he said, God, God is in control. We don't need to worry. He's got everything in control. And you know what? This is a good time for us to remember that now. We need to remember that now. So this unchanged heavenly reality shown to John is a vital foundational hope for John. And obviously on behalf of these churches. Ultimately, that's, this is, remember, that's who the letter is for. John is the recipient, but now the intended uh, audience was or were these churches. It was for the current day Christians that were living at that time. And it was a foundational hope. Why? Before the upcoming drama to be shown to him. Basically, God's saying there is one constant that never fails. There's one thing that never fails. Mm. And when you think about it, you think of John's life at that moment. You know, his brother James had been executed 20 years earlier or so, all for the cause of the the gospel. Now he's in exile on Patmos. He's thinking, you know, my brother's been killed. What's going to happen to me when all this starts to happen? But in that space, that headspace, God says to him, let me bring you to this realm so you can see how we see things. Yes. And the security that is in that place of worship and in my throne. It's amazing. You know, guys, why can't you and I expect for God to meet us in our homes? Right now, even as we worship here online, you know, his spirit is able to move in our hearts and speak to us. Why wouldn't he give us hope? Why wouldn't he give us clarity of sight, just like John and those churches in our time of need? You know, the, the one time that I had that, that vision, that trance, and I heard what was happening in heaven, I wasn't in a church service. The one time that Bram had his trance, it was on our 14th wedding anniversary, or 12th, I can't remember, one of those, one of those. We've been married for 41 years. I can't remember exactly, but it was the 13th or 14th. And he and I were in our lounge room just on our knees praying and worshipping God. And this time it was my voice that was praying. And as I prayed, my voice faded out, and he 
went into a trance and he had a vision. Now, neither of us were in church services. Don't wait to be in church services where we're all together. We all love that. We want that. But this is accessible for us now. And it comes from a heart of worship. All right, so what is this throne room? I'm going to put it in Diane language, okay? Basically, I see this picture of the throne room as the headquarters of the universe. It's the engine room of eternity. It's the core of heaven. And it's the place of insight. Every time I worship, you know, I view our current world crisis in light of who God is and how heaven sees things. And, you know, every time I worship, this is where he speaks to me every single time. That's why we've started this prayer tower Zoom group, and I'm probably the one that goes on it the most. I'm constantly driving everyone nuts with WhatsApp things. Okay, I'm going on prayer tower again. Yes, I think I went on three times, each time for about an hour or hour and a half, each single time. And I do it because I don't want my thoughts anymore. I want his thoughts. So I go into this prayer tower. I don't care if there's no one praying with me or there's five people praying with me. All I know is I want to be in that place and I want to give uh, opportunity for God to speak to me. And it comes from that place of worship and praying and praying in the spirit because worship gives us the right perspective. That's the only thing that is a replica of heaven on earth is worship. It's the place of ultimate authority of God. Think about it. As these elders are casting down their crowns before the throne, they're acknowledging that their authority is in fact delegated authority because they're casting their throne before Mm. the one who sits on the throne. It's a place of surrender. See, when we worship, when we pray like this, it's it's incredible. And, And the following shows us just how much God is in control. And... You know, I'm going to begin to start to begin to end. All right. But in in chapter five, and this is a bit of a teaser for next week. All right. John saw a scroll in the right hand of God as he sat on the throne with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And the opening or the unsealing of this scroll is what actually leads to the unleashing of events that will take place all the way to the end of the world. All right, that's, that's what we're about to embark on next week. Now, first of all, John was kind of devastated. You can read this in, in, in the beginning of, of um, chapter 5 because no one was found worthy to open the book. So there he is. He's in this place of worship. He can see God's on the throne. In God's hand is this book, but no one's worthy to open this scroll And uh, so it's like this hidden book. However, then he sees the Lamb of God. And the Bible tells us that this Lamb of God, who is Jesus, was the only one worthy to open the seal. Now, two important realities to grasp immediately from this scene Mm. that ties in with what I've been saying here today is that this shows us that heaven is in control over the world, even to the very end. Mm. I don't know about you, but that kind of makes me feel good. Okay, so how do I know that? Because the fact that it was only after the opening of the seals, remember, which only the lamb was worthy to open, that events in the world began to take place. And so this shows us that Jesus the lamb is in charge of the agenda of world history right to the end of every single aspect of world history. He's in control. Nothing goes without him knowing about it or or uh, unleashing it or allowing it, even the bad stuff. And this is what we have to understand. It was only at the opening of the seals by Jesus, the seals of the the scroll, that we read the the release of various evil horse riders as God's judgment on the earth. That came as Jesus opened the scroll. And even after the opening of each seal, the evil rider appointed was released into action, listen to this, only at the command of one of the living creatures. Who were the living creatures? The ones that were worshipping. Day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So guys, he's got this. He's not surprised. He's got, he's, he's behind everything. He's overseeing everything and everything comes out of this perspective of worship. Mm-hmm. You know, that invitation to view the coming trials on earth from heaven's perspective must be seen from within the entirety of this heavenly worship scene shown to John. That's why I say this is kind of like the pivotal uh, segue chapter. It's the one that kind of is the pinnacle. In in my mind, it's kind of the pinnacle because it it gives me the hope and the base that I need to understand the rest of the book. 
It helps me understand the first three chapters and the perspective, but it also gives me assurance and security for the rest of the book. And the fact that it's being written for the churches also shows me it's essential that we also understand this. So God's not trying to hide this. He's trying to show us something. Mm. The statement day and night, they never stop saying holy, 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 should send a clear message to us that regardless of whatever happens in the earth, one thing that is uninterrupted by anything is the constant worship offered to God. Now, that is how we fight. That is how we fight. Worship is the greatest form of warfare because we go straight to the throne room of God. Like literally, we surrender our crowns of authority to the higher authority and we enter into God's and heaven's perspective. Now, this heavenly reality should remind us of King David who went in the midst of feeling distant. He felt distant and he felt forsaken by God. But you know what he, he did? Also, he was, he was experiencing tumultuous times. What did he do? He called out to him who was enthroned on the praises of Israel. Mm. Wow, this is, I think, 300 years even before Isaiah writes mm. what he writes. So this guy understood somehow David also had a revelation of, of praise and worship and the throne of God. He knew. He grasped the connection between the throne of God and worshipping God. So 300 years prior to Isaiah and then 800 years prior to John and here we are now, 2,000 years. Nothing has changed. God is still on the throne. The worship is still going. And if we will be people who will worship God, we will enter into that place and we will participate in that throne. Throne room worship. Come on, Melbourne Life. Some of you watching, you got saved in the presence of God. Some of you got saved in manifest worship times. You came in and you didn't know who God God was, but in that place of the presence of God, what happened? You got a revelation of who Jesus was. Was it cerebral? No, it was in your spirit. Yes. You see, this is what happens in worship. There's an impartation of information and understanding. Why? Because his spirit comes and joins with our spirit. Come on, it's time to get back to that place. Stop trying to attack and approach the world's problems from the point of view of our heads. We've got to stop this. On the one hand, yes, we've got to be intelligent believers, but that has to be on the word of God, on truth. But when it comes to everything out, trying to figure it out in our own strength and be trying to drill down it from cerebrally, it isn't going to work. Let's come back. I want to, let's get, allow God to call us back to the presence of God. This is where, think about it. David, all those years ago, why? Because he was a worshiper. He used to sit on the hill. He'd sit on the hill and he'd play his harp and he'd worship God. He had an encounter with with God Almighty. Once again, he wasn't in a church service. He was on a hill. This is all about your and my relationship with Jesus. This is what it goes back to. I don't care how professional our worship team sounds. I don't care how many practices they do. I don't care how, how many hot worship songs we have unless each and every one I'm pointing upstairs because they're all upstairs unless (laughs) and out there some of you are watching unless you and I have a personal intimate connection with that throne room we're just singing songs we are just singing songs you see this people come to Melbourne life because of the worship you know why that is? That's not because we've had musicians and singers change ever since we started the church. Mm-hmm. It's because there's a belief in Brahmana. We understand this principle and we, we, push our, we, we, we push our church in the direction of the presence of God. And we position and disciple our people to have access to the presence of God in that place of worship. Wow. The statement of David, oh my gosh, I could keep going, I won't. I've already gone too long, sorry guys. But viewed in life, light of this real life experience of John, you think about what David said, what John said, it sends us a clear message. The true praise and worship achieves two things. It enables us to see whatever situation we are in, in light of God, Jesus and the reality of heaven. Think about it. Those seals were about to be opened. Even heaven had never seen them before. Yet John had the privilege of witnessing the future realities from a position of worship. You see, that's why I teach in DMS that we can see things in the future and change the natural world and stay ahead in our understanding how from the spiritual realm in God's presence. You know, even DMS... 
the revelation of how to do DMS came to me in an extended time of worship in our church for three months, every single morning at our place from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. Manifest our conferences that, that touched many young people for I don't know how many years started because of the vision I saw in prayer, prayer and worship. In fact, I found what I wrote down uh, just recently in a book that I put away back from the year 2000. And, and I wrote, I said, I see this. I see worship touching the city. Now, we were a church of 40 people. But you know what? That's exactly what happened because God showed it to me from that position of worship. You see, this is where I hear God. And this is where we hear God and know his plans for the future. And that's why I feel most at home in worship. I feel comfort and courage fills my heart. Why? And the second point is this, because God is being enthroned in our praises, which means that our praise and our worship invites and activates his rulership and authority over whatever situation we face. All right. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to get ready. And I want us to sing that Revelation song that we did last week. Melbourne Life, and you can just start now. It's cool. You know, we are a worshipping church. And um, we will always be a worshipping church. Even the next generation of leaders will be worshippers. They have to be. We can only lead out of our own intimacy with God. This is powerful. Let's be people who pray and who worship in the presence of God. All right, let's just let's put our hands on our hearts and let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that you've done a new thing in our hearts, that you are doing a new thing. You are teaching us and you are training us. Open our ears to hear and our eyes to see what you are saying to the churches. Father, help us to be true worshippers, ones that know what it is to access your throne and come before you, Father. Let us see and hear things. Let us learn what it really is to fight, Father, to be people not fighting in our own strength against, uh, you know, fighting against flesh and blood, but rather we are fighting in the heavenlies by worshipping the one and true God, the only true God. That is the highest form of, of worship and warfare, is to worship you, Lord Jesus, and you alone. So, Father, take our hearts, take our understanding, increase our wisdom, increase our knowledge, increase the counsel. Every aspect that the Holy Spirit brings to our lives, I pray for increase, revelation and knowledge of who you are, Jesus. And we cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go for a